I think anything worthwhile that you build is going to take at least 10 years. That's a long time to go through the motions or to just find aspects of it that motivate you. This is Finding Adventure episode number nine. Evaluate opportunities against a high standard. So the world is full of great business ideas, but the amount of time you have to start companies is limited. So you have to make choices about where you want to invest your time. If you imagine a career that lasts for 50 years and it takes you 10 years to start and build a company, then you're not gonna get too many chances to do it. But if you don't just go for it sometimes, then you're never really gonna start anything, so it's tough. I'll say all the hardest decisions that I've made have been about whether to dig in and fight or give up and run. It's almost never totally clear what the answer is. And choosing badly can cost you time, money, relationships, and your health. And what you'll see happen sometimes is that you get excited about an opportunity and dive right into a startup idea that looks promising. And you grind it out for a long time because that's just what you do. And then at some point, you look back and you wish you would have been a little bit more deliberate and selective about the opportunity that you chose. So this is a three-part episode. Brian Kelly is gonna tell you how he and Dave Corcoran evaluated potential business ideas, passed on one that sounded really promising, and then picked the one that turned into Census, which is a successful early stage technology company. Brian's a real force in the Ann Arbor tech community. He's been a founder or early employee in a series of tech companies, including Duo Security, Trustbearer Labs, Nutshell, and Census. He's been a host for the A2 New Tech Meetup and really just a generous contributor to the Ann Arbor tech community. So let's start with part one. We're gonna hear about what Brian and Dave were trying to do back in 2016. My name is Brian Kelly. I am 38 years old and I've been working in tech startups for 15 years. I've been fortunate to be on the founding teams of a couple of successful startups but in 2016, for the first time, I decided to actually be the founding team. And I got together with a former founder of actually the first startup I worked with, a guy by the name of Dave Corcoran. And um, he was at a point in his career, I had worked for several B2B SaaS companies and decided I'd learned enough to start my own. But we were both in the same boat of, we didn't have um, an itch we were trying to scratch. We didn't have a specific idea that we wanted to turn into something real in the world. So we decided to say, well, what, what do we know? And this was obviously based on our previous experience of companies that we had worked with. And one of the, one of the criteria that I share uh, was, <laughs> was very specific. Uh, we knew that we wanted whoever this customer was at some point in time, that they would pay us at least $10,000 a year. That might sound very specific, but there's a, a reason for that is that my previous experience or, or most recent up until that point was I had worked for a local CRM company called Nutshell that sold to very small businesses. And you'll see these terms thrown around, VSB, SMB. <laughs> I think I've seen SMB defined as zero to 50 million in revenue. Well, that is a huge difference. And so I like to put out VSB being like, these companies are making under 5 million a year. And they were only paying, I think our average customers may be paying around two grand across their lifetime, not even in a year. And the reason why we got to this figure of whatever business we start, we want somebody to pay us at least 10,000 a year is, you know, that was just a floor that we set for ourselves to say, we want to be providing enough value that somebody's really brought, bought into this and they have some skin in the game and what we're doing. And they're not just paying us money because they're trying it out and kind of going to throw it out. While that's a great 
criteria that doesn't get you to an idea as far as ideas that we killed along the way well i i i shared that i gave one of the criteria that we said whatever we do we want people to pay us even in year one if it's a b2b product and somebody can't allocate ten thousand dollars per year to pay you that to me meant that the pain wasn't high enough and so we should be looking for a pain that that is that high but i look at it as there's, there's really three things that you're trying to line up market passion and ability so market being, and, and I would say problem and pain comes before market. Obviously you have to find a pain worth addressing, but there's plenty of pains out there. There's just not enough, a big enough market for. So do a big enough group of people that have the ability to pay, feel this pain. Then I'll get into how I would size that up. Passion, do I care about it? I went into, and, and historically, you know, I worked in cybersecurity for a while. I would say I was not your classic, like reverse engineering hacker in high school. I like to know how stuff worked, but I'm not like a security guy, though most of my, most of my experience and my career has been in security. I wouldn't say it's my biggest passion, but I found the parts about it that I cared about. I cared about user experience. I cared about disrupting competitors that got sort of fat and happy and didn't innovate a lot. So that's how I found my passion within security. But I would say if you're starting your own thing, and I will definitely take this advice for forward in whatever I do in the future, you have to care about the customer and the problem enough. I should say, I need to care enough because I think anything worthwhile that you build is going to take at least 10 years. That's a long time to go through the motions or to just find aspects of it that motivate you. So market, passion, and ability. Can we do any better than what's already out there? So there's a window into how Brian and Dave were thinking about the opportunity and what they were looking for in a startup. Now we're going to listen to Brian talk about an opportunity that they found that was very promising, had a lot going for it, but they ultimately decided to walk away from it. While you're listening, think a little bit about how you would have evaluated this opportunity and whether or not you would have come to the same conclusion. So yeah, the, the ideas ran the gamut. I'll talk now about one of the ideas that we spent more than a couple of days thinking about, we spent about a month on it. And it came to us through a University of Michigan computer science faculty member who his area of research was databases. Uh, he had ways to take very large amounts of data and run calculations in a very fast amount of time that basically leveraged probability to come up with an answer quickly. So that's the extent of the tech background I'll give on this. The idea was, could we create better travel search? Think about right now. You decide to go somewhere, you need to know, obviously, where you're traveling from and to specific dates. All of that burden of figuring out what are your options are really on the, the user to perform all these searches. Why can't we ask, take me somewhere warm in the winter, present me with the best itinerary based on my preferences. I don't like to drive. I want to travel somewhere. I only want nonstop flights. I'm willing, my work schedule is flexible, so I'm willing to travel in the middle of the week. Why can't we answer that question? So think of that as the problem statement to start with. And, and so th this actual problem statement and the prototype was brought to us by this faculty member connected to Dave and I through a mutual friend. The faculty member had posted on a mailing list, hey, I'm looking for help commercializing this idea. How do I find local entrepreneurs? And so this is just where the personal net network kicks in. So Dave and I sat down uh, with him and um, said, well, tell us what you got so far. What have you learned so far? They had spent, you know, some reasonable amount of time and money, I'll say, 
had a grant for a couple hundred thousand dollars and had a grad student that had worked on this for at least six months or more. And he felt like he had enough to say, how can we commercialize this? Dave and I said, hey, that's kind of a cool problem. We have no experience in travel, but um, this is interesting. Oh, I forgot to mention earlier, in addition to that 10 grand a year, one of the criteria of whatever business we started, we said we wanted it to have a strong technical differentiation. Another way to, to say that is we didn't want it to be easy for a competitor to come in and copy it quickly. And so this checked the box of both of those. We said, I don't know what you could charge for this, but let's just assume it's lots of money. And if this has been done not by somebody who, you know, done by actually computer science faculty who had experience and knew that when you're searching this many data points, think about that, this for a second. You need, to, you need to be able to look at every flight, every train ride, every rental car option between cities. It's just the space is so huge. I mean, that, that's why you can't do it today. It checked the box of, this is interesting enough. We think we can be technically differentiated. So how else did we decide whether or not we were gonna pursue this? We said, well, we have no experience in the travel industry. So let's talk to people who do. Dave knew somebody who had worked, uh, I can't recall if it's for sort of one of the intermediaries, not like an Expedia or one of the large sites, but kind of the backend services. And, and what we learned is that there's really like one major hub that every flight travel search goes through. And they actually make money based on the search itself. So every time Hipmunk or Google or Expedia or Travelocity or Hotwire searches for a flight, they actually pay a, a service charge. This central broker, what we learned through this process is if we could do what we were saying, we'll call it this, you know, third third party expert who we were asking, he said, you can make a, a lot of money, but there's only about one to three people who could buy it. And they've seen a lot of stuff like this before. So unless you have a unique way to go direct to the consumer, for those you might not remember, if you want to read the Hipmunk story, that's an interesting one of where they decided to go right to the user and kind of worked around necessarily needing to work with any of these brokers, call them. But we determined there was only enough buyers for this that we could count on one hand. So that was sort of strike one against the idea. But hey, if we could charge them enough, maybe this is going to be like a quick flip and we could change the user experience and make a lot of money in a short amount of time. Okay, so that's a, that's a hurdle, but one we're willing to work with. They said in order for us to, you know, even pitch this idea to them, they wanted to know, well, how well does what you have work? And so... We said, that's a fair question. Let's look into it. What we learned was while the algorithm and the idea was sound, it had not actually been tested with a lot of data. I think it actually was Expedia had like a hackathon or something they sponsored. And so they gave like public API access for a limited period of time. And that's, it had been done over like a couple thousand searches, but it had not exhaustively been tested. Two, there was no, no work had been done on, will users actually use this? The idea sounds great, right? If you said to me, hey, I want to plan a vacation. I've got a week sometime in February or March, show me and for me and my family, show me options. Like, that sounds great. Like I would, I would use that, but what does it actually mean to get mass adoption of or to get even a decent amount of adoption like that. So that work had not been done and the actual validation of does this work well enough have been done and combined with the strike of there's only a few buyers for this, we walked away. 
obviously we wanted to find this. We wanted to find a fit. We were getting along and, you know, interested. I got the juices flowing to go through this, but enough of those strikes, we said, you know, this just doesn't make sense for, for us to be the founders that see this through. Okay, so now let's contrast that story with the story of Census. What made Census different from all the other opportunities that they were looking at and gave them the confidence to go for it? Census had a lot going for it. Namely, there was no proving that there was value because there were thousands of users using it every day. Now, those users weren't paying anything. So that's what we spent the majority of our time in the first 45 days interviewing a subset of those users that worked for large companies that we knew had security budget and talking to the user, potentially buyer at those companies and saying, how are you using the data that you're getting from Census? Short version of what Census does is the same way that Google indexes websites. Census indexes every device connected to the internet continuously. It was originally created for security researchers to understand the impact of their research or recommendations. For example, if you write an email in a specific way and you send it out to system administrators on the internet, does that make them more or less likely to patch their systems? Turns out you can write an email in a certain way and the data shows that they patch because if you continuously scan the internet, you can know what versions of software that they're running. Great research question. Turns out that same data that's being collected can help companies protect themselves online to know what is exposed. And so from a validating side, there was no validating of our individual users getting uh, value out of this. The user adoption from the day it launched in fall of 2015 through when Dave and I partnered with the faculty and grad students that had worked on it in summer 2017, steady adoption curve of both signups, daily active users, um, and number of searches being performed. So there's clearly engagement in this tool I should say census.io, the, the website, was basically a way for people to ask questions about the data that was being indexed, um, such as what ver what's the most popular web server version, what countries have the most industrial control systems exposed, and what do I have exposed as my organization? So you got validation of there is usage, steady adoption. Now the question becomes, is there a business here or is this just a great free tool? And I've done a lot of customer discovery interviews for a bunch of different companies before. Once you get somebody on the phone, they have a lot to say. So anyone who's wondering like, oh, no one's going to want to talk to me about their problems, my products, like you just need to do it. And you will find that not only do they have a lot to say about the problems you're asking about, you'll probably learn about a bunch of other problems that they have. Everyone likes to talk about their life. It's kind of a free therapy session for them. But going into this one, we were even having done that a lot in the past. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm good. I'm not going to be like, I'm going to be very upfront with when I send emails out to the users of the service and say, hey, we're looking at commercializing this. We want to talk to you about how you've been using census and what you might like to see in a product that we're going to charge money for. At some point, I was expecting that to cut off a large majority of the people we were reaching out to. But as it turns out, they were super happy to talk to us because they were so grateful for the last 18 months plus that we gave this away for free. And by we, I mean the faculty member and grad students that created it at Michigan. So they were just like, hey, this is the least I can do for you, whether or not, you know, you guys take this advice or time. Um, so that was really great. We were specifically looking to talk to people that had self-identified as being part of a company that was over, I think probably in all cases, was over $100 million in, in revenue. So these were established companies with security budget 
And we want to understand how were you using this and what would you want to see in it if we charged money? And over 80% of those conversations, we probably had about 50 overall conversations. They said, we're really happy to hear that this is not just going to disappear when the academic funding for it runs out. And so we totally understand that you have to charge money for it. And we're happy to. This is what motivated us to initially launch a company around selling the data rather than building a more security purpose-driven product because uh, we had in conversation number one, we're saying we're willing to pay. So I think there were a couple differences in that versus the travel algorithm opportunity I mentioned previously, adoption, traction of users, large enough market and willingness to pay from buyers. That is how we decided this is pretty unique. And, and, and I'll, I'll say the really unique part from a tech transfer perspective is that a lot of times you can't, you go through tech transfer and then you invest some commercialization, time, money, effort, and then you launch a product. In this case, the data was already being produced. Instead of giving it away for free, we were going to start charging for it. And from the very first day we, we started charging, we already had several large enterprise contracts lined up with people willing to pay. Um, and that's probably not charging enough money for what they were getting, but from going from zero revenue to you know, a couple hundred thousand within months um, was a pretty great spot to be in. A lot of details like that get glossed over in the retelling, but I find specific details like that really helpful in improving my own decision-making. So Brian, thank you so much for sharing that firsthand account of how you guys evaluated opportunities and ultimately found the right one for you. Before we wrap this episode up, I want you to hear a little bit from Brian about how he and Dave work together. And as you listen, think a little bit about the people that you have in your business or in your life who look at problems in a slightly different way and that might be helpful to surround yourself with in a moment where you're making a really hard decision. One of the reasons that I liked working with Dave so much so we're both have a computer science background. We both like similar kinds of products or like attributes of products, but where we differ is in how we make decisions. I like to take time, look at all the data, spend time going through all of the competitive products, using all the competitive products. I like doing customer interviews and then kind of pouring over the information. Dave is more of a gut decision maker. And I say this in the in the best sense of gut decisions, um, because I think gut decisions are usually correct. Don't think too quick to make decisions, but where he would push me is in saying, Brian, we could look at the data for another week. Are you really gonna learn anything new? It sounds like you already know what we should do here. And he really appreciated all the depth that I would go into of saying, eh, I'm not, not so sure about this. So for me personally, what, what, what I've learned that I need to do, and I think this is this requires everybody to think about themselves and how, how they make decisions. I need that time to pour over the data and read. But what I also need is the accountability and I need to get out of my own head. And I need to be able to, once I can explain to somebody else and I'm excited about them challenging or poking holes in it, I know I'm getting to a good a good place. As far as the headspace to get into, there's almost like I, I, when I would when I approach something new, there's different phases to it, and I get I get excited about the well, what else is out there? Let me go do my prior art research. Let me see what other people are using. I love the data input gathering phase. I can almost like get in the zone doing that <laughs> because I enjoy it. I can just do it forever, and then I 
it almost like there's diminishing returns after a while. And it will actually, if I do it too long, it'll be really discouraging because I'm like, well, shit, there's no, there's no reason I should do this because look at all these other products out there. What helps ground me is talking to real customers and then telling my story, telling my pitch back to a variety of peers that I trust. If I can't do that, I'm either you know purely procrastinating and just saying, well, I just need to go get, go get more data. But I referenced Dave here and, and I referenced like what I really appreciated about our partnership is that we complemented each other in this way. Even though we had similar backgrounds, we didn't agree on everything, similar values, but he would push me to finish the pitch deck, get on the road, pitch investors about this and move things forward. So everyone's got to find their own mix of that, figure out what kind of person you are. And I think you need both sides. This has been episode nine of a 13 part series. So we're coming into the home stretch. In the next episode, you're gonna learn about the number one most important advantage that startups have. It's something that I call radical prioritization. And it boils down to giving yourself permission to only focus on the number one most important thing to do. Big companies can't afford to do that. They have to keep a lot of balls in the air. And the stories that you'll hear are from Jeff Mason from Ground Speed, which is probably the fastest growing technology startup in Ann Arbor right now. So have a listen and let me know what you think.